it, it's condensation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, we have our first installment of Freeway Philharmonic, a series dedicated to highlighting people who have built successful freelance careers for themselves and digging into how they did it. On this episode, we are going to feature Dean Heist. Dean is a staple of the musical community in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I am from. I've known him my entire musical life, but because I was younger, I didn't know him all that well personally. This interview was an amazing opportunity for me to get to know him and learn from a person who has basically created a dynasty for himself and how he uses that to create opportunities for himself and the musicians in Lincoln to perform, as well as creating a ridiculous amount of musical culture for the community in Lincoln. We started the interview with him talking about his early life getting into music and the non-linear path he happened to take. Well, um, I don't know as I ever had uh, a master plan for you know what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I liked music. Um, I grew up in Hastings, uh, Nebraska, and uh, like lots of small towns, there are 24, 22,000 people there when I grew up. Um, you get an opportunity to play in everything. So I played in the orchestra. I played in the um, pit orchestra. I played in the what they called the stage band back then, the jazz band. I played mm-hmm. in the marching band. I played in the concert band, and um, got a lot of opportunities to play. I played in my church, and uh, I really enjoyed music. But I liked math and chemistry, and when I went to the University of Nebraska. Um, I started out as a math and chemistry major um, for a, a while, and then I joined a rock band, and we started uh, playing uh, lots and lots of gigs, and uh, were really pretty busy. And I, you know, I just kind of lost interest in the math and chemistry side of things. And uh, so I also had taken piano lessons for quite a number of years in uh, in Hastings. And I switched to a piano major for a while. I was a piano major for a semester. And I had a, a teacher that, uh, oh, he was very, uh, he was a genius. Uh, he's a I, Charles I scholar. And uh, he um, he and I just didn't get along very well. I was in a, a class with uh, uh, three older, uh, very attractive um, uh, female piano majors, and I was very intimidated, uh, you know, being a shy young man at the time, and at one point he got really upset with me over my fingernails being too long, and he, he trimmed my fingernails and uh, during the lesson, and I thought, eh, I yeah, that's like, maybe don't <laughs> want any of that. <laughs> So I went. I went down. There were four piano instructors at the time, and I went down to talk to the director of school of music. And uh, you know, of course, they couldn't let students move around, or one teacher would have a bunch of them, and the other wouldn't have very many. So he said, "Nope, you're going to stay with where you are." So I said, "Well, then I'm not going to be a piano major anymore." So I spent a year as a major of undeclared or undecided in the College of Undeclared, 
And I started taking some trumpet lessons from um, the graduate assistant at the time, Lester Mons. And Lester was a he was a very uh, articulate, very interesting uh, person. He played well and gave me a lot of uh, help uh, playing my trumpet. And then after a semester with Lester, I uh, switched to taking trumpet lessons from Denny Schneider. Yeah, and I got uh, I got my bachelor's degree there um, in music ed. And I decided I really didn't want to teach um, at the time. Um, I had some opportunities to um, uh, play doing a lot of different things, and um, I was getting involved in playing a lot of things in, in the area. I had played with some rock bands, and then I was uh, got a job playing the second uh, trumpet with the Lincoln Symphony Orchestra, and I was playing in Omaha with that symphony at the time. I was doing some assistant principal and fourth trumpet up there. And then there was a new orchestra that got started in Lincoln called the Nebraska Chamber Orchestra, and I was playing principal with that group. Um, I started playing with um, the Nebraska Jazz Orchestra, which was a neoclassic jazz orchestra at the time. And there were really quite a lot of things going on in Omaha. Um, there were a lot of a lot of jingles, just lots of uh, playing opportunities. Um, the uh, Chip Davis. Um, with uh, the Mannheim Steamroller got his start doing um, jingles up in Omaha and I, I worked some jingles for him and other people there are really quite a number of radio, television and uh, other other things that uh, were, were happening mostly in Omaha and some in Lincoln and uh, there was uh, just a lot of freelance work I was um, playing with an orchestra it's a um, Oh, they used to have this thing called Exarban, which is, it's a weird thing. It's Nebraska spelled backwards. Right. And at the time, it was the world's largest membership nonprofit. And I think they had like 80,000-some members or more across the state of Nebraska. And with your membership, you were entitled to attend the shows that they produced at the Coliseum in Omaha. And they would have six, seven, eight, shows a year with um, you know fairly well-known major guest artists you know they bring in Wayne Newton for a week and do eight shows um, the Smothers Brothers uh, uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Um, just you know a lot of acts that were popular in the 70s 80s and early 90s and so you know that was a lot of playing and it was it paid pretty well and I kind of got away from playing with the orchestras because um, they tied you down to uh, quite a bit of time for not nearly as much money, frankly, as you're able to make in the freelance world. So I kind of uh, went that direction. I started teaching part-time on the Lincoln Public Schools at first and then Lincoln Catholic Schools, and then I got a job uh, adjunct uh, at Nebraska Wesleyan University where I taught trumpet, and uh, I uh, ended up teaching the jazz ensemble after a while, and also the, the brass ensemble, and teaching a jazz improvisation class, and did the band director gig for a, a semester while the band director was on sabbatical, and uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed teaching, I enjoyed yeah. working with uh, the kids. At one point, I had like 40-some private students I was teaching at my home, and then I just kind of got busy playing things to the point where I couldn't uh, really continue 
my private studio. I, for a while, I tried hiring uh, friends who, who played trumpet to teach for me, and uh, they would come in and uh, teach my lessons for me, and I'd um, you know work it that way. And then once I uh, you know I showed up to teach my lessons, and there was this new kid, and it turns out he'd had three or four lessons with other people and I'd never met him before. He was supposed to be a student of mine. So I'm thinking, you know, this just isn't really working out for me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh I kinda got out of the private uh, uh teaching business and uh was I don't know, doing a lot of different things. There's really a lot of odd gigs here in, in Nebraska. There's a lot of things that come through, you know, there were I played with lots of polka bands and Dixieland bands and swing bands and dance bands and occasionally would get uh, you know a gig um, to go on the road to uh, sub for a friend of mine that you know was doing some cruise ship gigs and occasionally we'd go out on a um, you know a week or so tour with Chris Riddle was leading the Nelson Riddle Orchestra for a while and uh, would do a tour through the Midwest and that sort of thing and so I was really playing a lot I think it's pretty cool to see how Dean's path to playing the trumpet wasn't a straight line. He has such a successful career now playing the trumpet, but he didn't have it all figured out right away. It's a great example for those that may not know exactly what they want yet, and it's also a great example of just being willing to be flexible and experience new things. At this point in the conversation, I noted that Dean was playing virtually every style of gig possible, and I asked him why he thought he got called so much. You know, my, my teacher, Denny Schneider, was, um, he, he always told me, you know, if you, if you want to work, you really have to be able to do all styles. And I, I kind of went through some periods when I was younger, it always kind of amused me until it affected what I was getting called for. Um, when I first went to UNL and became a trumpet major, there were like 25 trumpet majors at the time. And out of those 25, I was squarely number 25 on the list. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time practicing. That was that was when I first met Lori Frank. She was going to school at the same time. Right. Lori just practiced all the time. And I was practicing a lot. So I, you know, be hanging out in the third floor and I'd hear her playing, you know, and I didn't really know her. She was older than me and I was, you know, shy at the time. And so finally she came out and I introduced myself and I and I said, Hey, you know, you wanna you wanna play some duets? And she goes, You know, who the hell are you? <laughs> and I, and I told her who I was and she said, Yeah, sure, well come on, we'll play some duets. So I ended up playing a lot of duets with Lori and get getting to know her pretty well and just spending a lot of time practicing and getting that work ethic uh, going in terms of really working and, and practicing all the time. But at the time I was playing with some rock bands and I kind of, and I was doing some commercial things, you know, dance bands and I got kind of labeled as a, you know, a commercial player. And then, um, about my senior year in, uh, college, uh, the trumpet position opened up with the Lincoln symphony and I had been playing with the university orchestra, and I auditioned for the job, and I got that job, and the uh, principal player at the time, Steve Erickson, had gone from the Lincoln Symphony to playing in the Omaha Symphony, and I played with him, so he, he called 
me to come and play assistant for him and do some fourth in the Omaha Symphony Circuit, playing a lot of orchestral things almost exclusively for a couple of years. And then I kind of got labeled as being a, you know, a classical or legit player. And then I started doing more of the things that I was talking about earlier with uh, freelancing and playing commercial things and shows and uh, I kind of got labeled as being kind of that player when I stopped playing the orchestra things as much. So over a period of time, I I, I kind of got pigeonholed as, you know, this type of player, that type of player, but I I always tried to keep my playing up um, so that I felt comfortable doing a little bit of everything. I, you know, I'm I'm not a, a good jazz player, but I played enough commercial and other jobs that, you know, somebody says, hey, can you you take a course on this blues tune or this uh, standard, you know, I at least understand what key it's in and what the melody sounds like, and I can fake my way through it. So, you know, I try really hard to keep all of those different aspects of my my playing up, and that's, that's still the case uh, now. So it just kind of was an opportunity thing, and then also by design, I, I really tried hard to practice the things that um, that I wasn't doing at the time. So if I was playing a lot of um, orchestral music and doing some trumpet recitals and that sort of thing, I'd try and make sure I was practicing, you know, you know, endurance things and uh, commercial things and and, and uh, trying to keep my, my chops up for uh, other styles. The way he talked about balance in his playing reminded me of some advice I've gotten from various teachers I've had and then also my own experience about managing balance in the orchestra. When we have heavy weeks, we should be practicing easy and low-impact things, but during light weeks, we should be balancing it with heavier impact playing. Now, that balance is very important, but we're still sort of dealing with the lens of orchestral playing. I thought it was interesting to hear Dean talk about balance in his freelance career and how it meant being able to play all different styles and that when he was playing a lot of big band gigs, that meant he needed to practice orchestral music. It's just very interesting that balance means being great at all styles for a freelance player. I then asked Dean that if you didn't have to be the, quote, best at taking solos or playing in commercial styles, what other factors maybe went into being called so often? Well, I, you know, I kind of look at myself as a jack of all trades. I, you know, I, I, I've made my share of mistakes over the years. I, I've learned as much from making mistakes as I have from doing something right or getting lucky. And I like to think I've mellowed it a little bit as I've gotten older. I maybe not as antagonistic, and maybe I'll hold my tongue a little bit more than I used to when I was younger, which. Um, you know, I'm sure at, at times in my my youth that cost me some opportunities because, um, you know, just really not looking looking ahead or thinking about how something you might do or you might say might affect you know uh, your your opportunities with this or that um, employer down the road. Um, I took a second to briefly note that I've heard that what your reputation is and how easy you are to get along with can be at least as important, if not more important, than your playing is in determining how successful you are in a freelance career. That that dependability, you know, I, I think probably that's one of my, um, or I probably rank pretty high on anybody's scale, you know, if they 
they hire me for a job, I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm not going to dump it for another gig. If I do get another gig, I may talk to that person and say, I've got an opportunity to do this, but I don't want to leave you hanging. And if they can't, you know, we can't work something out so they're happy, then I'll, I'll turn down another gig that I'd maybe rather do or pays more money. So that's, that's a lot of it in the music business, especially in the freelance business, is just knowing that someone is not only going to be there, but they, that they are um, going to be able to, to do what you hired them for. And, uh, a lot of players uh, lose lose out on repeat calls when uh, they, they mess those things up. But Dean continued by telling a story about a particular gig that he had and how losing it taught him a very valuable lesson. I was going to say one of the things that I think really changed for me was in the oh in the 1980s. I was playing a lot of different things, and I I got a gig playing with the um, Union Pacific Railroad um, German band, and it seems kind of strange, but uh, lots of um, big companies in the United States and especially in Europe. Um, would have a company band, and they, that still happens in Europe and England, especially. They've got, you know, a coal factory or, you know, like the Brastoff movie, um, where there's a, a company band that uh, is made up of uh, people who work for that company, and they, you know, get together and play music. And they have all kinds of competitions and that sort of thing. And there was a, a holdover from that here in Omaha with the Union Pacific Railroad, which is a huge, huge business. And they had a band that had oh, eventually morphed into a smaller group. It became kind of a German polka band, but uh, because the leader was a, oh, a jazz piano player, um, we played a lot of swing music. We played um, what they call family day celebrations all around the western half of the United States, basically wherever the Union Pacific Railroad goes, and any place that they had a, a sizable workforce, like North Platte, they've got a huge rail yard. They've got lots of employees in Salt Lake City and in, in Texas and um, California and Oregon and uh, just all around the Midwest. We would take off and play um, for their family day celebration. So we'd fly out on a, a Friday and spend all day getting there and check into the hotel. And then we had our own railroad car that they would ship out um, that the side would open up and we'd play out of that railroad car in the rail yard. So we'd play from 8 until 6 sometimes. You know, you'd play 45, 50 minutes and take a 10, 15-minute break, and you'd play again, and sometimes out in the sun and hot and dusty conditions. And then we'd get done and head back to the hotel, and then uh, the next morning we'd fly back to Omaha. So um, I would do sometimes... 13, 14, or 15 of those gigs a summer when I was working with that group. And uh, and that was a lot of fun. But um, that that opportunity disappeared when they, uh, they hired this guy. He was, not on the, he was not a railroad person. Everybody else that had run the railroad up to that point had come through the ranks and was a, uh, you know, uh, knew everything there was about what needs to be done on a, on an engine out in the middle of uh, wherever. But uh, they hired this guy. And uh, he came in, and his job was basically to make it run more like a business. So he cut the whole public relations department, I think, which was where uh, this band was located out of. And so the budget disappeared, so the gig disappeared. 
And I remember that next summer, it was probably late, mid-late 80s, um, I'm sitting around and I'm going, gosh, I just don't have any gigs, you know, I, I get trouble, you know, paying my bills and uh, um, it was um, a realization that, you know, when things are good, it's, it's nice, but when they're not, that's really difficult because you don't have any control over what gigs are available or who's giving you a call. So that was when I kind of decided that I was going to move in a different direction and try and do things that would help me create playing opportunities for things that I enjoy doing. Um, at the time, I was already helping to manage the Nebraska Jazz Orchestra that was doing a series of concerts in Lincoln and Omaha. And the Lincoln Municipal Band, you've come back and played with that group a couple of times. As a, yeah, right. Uh, it's a professional concert band. We do, uh, you know, 33 musicians. We do concerts on Sunday evenings in the park, like lots of little towns in America have had for 100 years. And uh, the conductor who had done that for years, um, you know, was a great trumpet player in his, in his day. And he kind of single-handedly kept that going for about 50 years. And then he had some health issues. And uh, he, um, one day he said, uh, I want you to take the music in your car because I'm not going to, I'm not feeling well. I'm not going to conduct this next next week. I want you to conduct. And um, I said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't like conductors, <laughs> especially when they're me. And uh, he, uh, but he insisted. And that was, that was I, re I realized that that's what he intended for me to do was what he had been doing. Because when the previous conductor had left, um, he was the first trumpet player with the band, and they handed him the baton, and then he became the, the conductor and uh, basically ran the band for about 50 years, and that's what he was wanting me to do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I did conduct a couple, but um, I, I worked hard to put together a board of directors, and um, it was a nonprofit organization. They hadn't really been functioning that way. And um, the only people that I really knew to put on the board were um, musicians and band directors. So we created this board of 10 or 12 people. And what I discovered is that musicians and band directors are just make terrible board members for a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we actually, you know, we got things moving along in the right direction. And then the, the board eventually morphed to involve more community members and, and people that had some connections to, oh, businesses in the community that uh, could help support the group and uh, some people help write grants and that sort of thing. So I, I kind of got involved in arts management that way. And around that time, I started a group called the Nebraska Brass. Um, it's a professional brass quintet. And we just finished our 30th anniversary last year. We uh, released, um, I think, our sixth and our seventh, sixth and seventh CDs. And uh, one with some pieces that we commissioned with composers that we really liked their music. Uh, Jan Bach wrote us a piece yeah. called Blowout, which is the title of our CD. And John Cheatham wrote us a very interesting piece, uh, Partita and Pico, I think it's called. And it's a, it's a bunch of Renaissance dances um, set in modern uh, harmonization and uh, interesting meters, 11, 16, and... Um, you know, five eight and seven <laughs> all eight. the fun stuff. Yeah, but they really <laughs> they they just they're very comfortable to um, play and listen to. It's fun music. So uh, that group does about 
we do a series of five concerts each year, and each of those five concerts we do uh, one in Lincoln, one in Omaha, and three in other communities around the state. So uh, you know Nebraska, but you know people listening to this probably don't. But um, in the middle of the state, there's two or three bigger cities, uh, Kearney, Hastings, and Grand Island. We get out that far on a regular basis. So we do um, 25 concerts that are you know, fairly serious brass quintet music. We try and put things that are more challenging and maybe some original music written for brass quintet on the first half and more classical in nature. And then the second half, we try to, oh, it's it's lighter. Um, you know, a little more commercial, band, probably, yeah. Commercial, jazz. And that, that seems to be a good formula for us. So we get a chance to play some music that's really challenging, that, you know, requires us to uh, rehearse and um and we also get to play some uh, some lighter things. And there's there's really a lot of uh, challenging commercial music out there now. Uh, Robert Elkier has written a bunch of things for Rascal and Tep that are you know kind of jazz themed that uh, are very commercial that are really fun and very 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 challenging. Dean was going to go on, but I kind of interrupted him to ask him to elaborate on how he was successful in starting and maintaining a brass quintet for 30 years. How did he find people that would work well together, and how did he create opportunities for his group? Well, we were um, one of your teachers, Michael Anderson, uh, and I were good friends, and he was teaching at Dana College, and we talked about putting together brass quintet, because we played in quintets in college, and we didn't have one that we could play in. And uh, there was a, the two brothers, French horn trombone, and uh, another uh, player, tuba player, that were playing in the... Uh, Air Force Band stationed in Omaha, and um, that job for them was was work, and uh, it maybe wasn't as fun because of the person who was leading the group for them at the time. So they were looking for a playing opportunity where it could be more relaxed and they could play music that they wanted to play and and have some fun with it. So we we got together and we we started reading some music, and after a while we thought, you know, some of this sounds pretty good. We ought to put on a concert. So um, we did that, and I think there were seven people at first concert. They were all related to somebody in the the group. Sure, but, that's usually um, how After right? that, because I'd had some experience working with uh, Nebraska Arts Council and writing some grants, um, I submitted a, a proposal for our quintet to be on the Nebraska Arts Council touring program, and that's where uh, um, one of the communities around the state that maybe has a series of uh, community concerts, they can get partial support for bringing in a, a group out from Lincoln or Omaha uh, that's uh, on that program. So I put together a grant. We, I remember we were sitting around talking about it. And we thought, well, what, you know, what should we ask for this? We didn't know anything about what we were doing. And we thought, well, I don't know. 900 bucks sounds pretty good, you know. We could each make 100 or $150 and pay for our gas, and, and that just was a, a, sounded like a wonderful idea at the time. So we, we put ourselves on this touring program uh, for 900 bucks, and then what we discovered was all of a sudden we were, we were instantly popular, um, like places like Scott's Bluff and Gehring and uh, Valentine and all of the far-flung corners of the state where it took you a day to drive there, and then you had um, a couple nights motel, and you had a, a couple of cars or a van that you had to rent and gas mileage and meals. and So we didn't make much money, but we did about uh, 15 gigs that first year. 
and I got a call from uh, the guy that booked um, the St. Louis Brass Quintet. Uh, mm-hmm. He called me, and he was nice about it. He says, hey, you guys are just killing us, you know? You, you flooded the market. <laughs> right? And we, we're not playing as near as much in Nebraska as we used to. So we started raising our rates, and uh, we're working last. And then we started doing a series of concerts, and um, we just really have kept at it. Um, I think the reason it's uh, survived is because it's been um, managed by my my business that uh, that I created, so that I could uh, help manage the other nonprofit organizations that uh, I work with. This is where the interview gets really amazing. Dean starts to talk about his business, Arts Incorporated, and the many ways that it services the musical community in Lincoln. This section is about 15 minutes long, and as I was listening, I was thinking, where can I cut this down? But as he kept talking, I was just more and more amazed at how creative he is with finding new opportunities for musical groups to perform. I ended up leaving all of the material in, hoping that anyone listening can see how being creative and thinking outside the box is absolutely necessary when building a freelance career of your own. I think it was probably in around the same time in the 80s when I was doing mostly freelancing and teaching quite a bit. The tax laws changed, and anything that I wasn't getting paid for with the W-2 um, my, you know, my private lessons and my um, freelance gigs had me filed on a Schedule C, and they um, had changed the law such that it just really was taking a whole bunch of money and making it difficult to get deductions for things that you had done before. And I actually got audited by the IRS and um, contentious uh, process as far as what I was trying to deduct for my business and my studio and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. um, I, I incorporated a NAS corporation. Um, mostly for tax purposes, but what it also did was gave me a organization that made it easier for me to serve as an employer for musicians. So the musicians uh, I work with uh, through the various nonprofits get treated as employees, and my business uh, hires those, and then I contract with uh, nonprofits to provide them with with what they need. So, you know. I'd, the symphony orchestra, for example, has an office. They have an executive director. They have maybe you know, staff members that help them with marketing and fundraising and that sort of thing. The nonprofit groups I work with are much smaller, and none of them could afford that on their own. But when five of them, which is the case now, uh, you know, kind of uh, group together and each of them contributes what they can um, to my business, to provide those services. Um, I have, oh gosh, about 10 people now that work um, part-time for me um, that do all those things. I have somebody that hires musicians for me. I have people that help write grants for the various organizations. I have um, someone who helps with our, our database and our web pages and uh, others that help me with uh, uh, the various nonprofits. 
and the things that need to be done. I have someone that helps with graphic design. We do our own programs and flyers. So um, it makes it a little bit easier for me to uh, do things that help keep an organization like the Nebraska Brass together. So we've kind of, uh, that organization has grown as we've been successful in finding them um, uh, financial support. Um, local foundations, the Nebraska Arts Council, uh, the Lincoln Arts Council used to be more local businesses supported the arts and um, they do now, but uh, we really spent a lot of time writing grant applications. I would say for the five nonprofits that we work with uh, out of my business, we probably submit over a hundred different grant applications each year. And we're, we're successful to a certain extent with a, you know, a really pretty good percentage of those applications. None of them are for huge amounts of money, but uh, um, it all it all adds up. And with uh, five organizations, it helps not only to keep the organizations going, but uh, to help my business uh, survive. About um, probably 15 years or so ago, um, we got together with some friends that played trumpet, and it was similar to the Nebraska Brass. We started a group called uh, the Nebraska Trumpet Ensemble. Yeah, I played with that group a long time ago. <laughs> that, that group has been presenting um, a couple of concerts each year. Uh, we have one coming up this spring called Nebraska Trumpet Ensemble and Friends, where we invite uh, students and members of the community to come and play with us. And we do a couple of large trumpet ensemble things with uh, with anybody who wants to come and play. Um, and each of the groups that I work with also spends uh, a portion of uh, their money and their efforts in educational outreach. So the trumpet ensemble does a couple of concerts in the schools, like in elementary schools each year. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nebraska Brass does four uh, educational concerts in the Lincoln area and four in the Omaha area each year. Lincoln Municipal Band sends musicians out into the schools, uh, has a young artist competition. The Nebraska Jazz Orchestra sends musicians out in the Lincoln Middle Schools. Um, they have a young jazz artist competition and a audition group of musicians that uh, plays on one of their concerts. So having that educational component is is critical um, because those are the types of things that are maybe more attractive to some uh, foundations and funders. Right. It's hard to find a business or a foundation that really wants to see you know, a, a big band, a jazz band continue in and of itself. Um, there, are, there are, because of the, the history of our society, you know, there are people um, that that want to see symphony orchestras continue. There are, you know, a lot more people in our community that are, are active socially, that, um, you know, are, are more wealthy, that, that, that want to see those types of things, opera and symphony, uh, continue. So there's really quite a bit of support that goes into some of those traditional um, nonprofit music organizations, but smaller, non-traditional ones, there there isn't isn't that as much. Right. Yeah. And, uh, so you have to be more uh, creative in, in how you approach funders, and if you can say, look, we're we're getting out into the schools. We're doing things that nobody else is doing in terms of uh, providing opportunities for students to hear uh, professional music. That sometimes that really helps them to uh, support not only the educational outreach, but a little bit more in addition to that. And then I, I have one other nonprofit that we started about 
20 years ago. It's called the Capital Jazz Society. And it really started with a, a, a reading band, a Monday Night Big Band. And um, we've played at a variety of hotels and clubs and bars around the community. Now we're at a, oh, it's a group pub. They, uh, there's a, a former student of mine uh, is the owner of it. And uh, we've been there for a year and it's been a, it's been a good uh, fit for us. Monday nights are typically not busy for the restaurant business. Um, and it's not really a sports bar. So you're not chasing away anyone who's there to watch television or for other reasons. So Monday was kind of a, a quiet night for them. So they help us out um, with what we're doing, and then we we provide um, live jazz music for them on every Monday night out of the year. So the first Monday of each month, we have a small uh, we have a, a house trio that we hire, and then uh, it's advertised as a jazz jam, so anybody can come down and, and sit in with the band. Uh, the other Monday nights, um, uh, we alternate between a Monday night big band, which is a reading band, um, kind of like the you know, the Thad Jones Mel Lewis thing was at the Vanguard years ago where, you know, it was just uh, getting together to read music because it's fun and because you don't get an opportunity to do that. And then the other nights we feature uh, local and regional and sometimes um, pretty well-known smaller groups that are coming through the area. Um, with the Internet and everything now, it's it's easier for um, a group. We had a group uh, just this last Monday, um, drummer from New York, his name is Pete Zimmer, um, mm-hmm. who was who was coming through, and he you know gets hops on the internet, and he sees there's this jazz series on Mondays, and Mondays the night that he doesn't have a gig, and so he approached us and said, hey, I'd, you know, I'd like to come in, and so he hired a couple of um, really great uh, musicians, one from Omaha and one from Lincoln, that did a trio gig, and uh, it was just you know outstanding music. It's not something that you would hear anyplace else around here. The the nice thing about what that group does and what it allows for musicians is there are no restraints placed on them as to what they play. So it's not a commercial gig. Um, they don't, they're not there to make the audience happy. They're there to play what they like and to make themselves happy. Sure. And, you know, we, we try and, and, and choose groups that will be, you know, a, a good fit for people that are expecting jazz music, but uh, they're not, you know, it's not a dance gig and they don't take requests. And they get to play you know, what they want, which is for a lot of groups who's worth, you know, more than the money right. to have an opportunity to be able to do that sort of thing. So it kind of fills a different uh, void. Um, my business also works with uh, one of the foundations that we've developed a relationship with over the years that has funded a number of the nonprofits. The Lincoln Community Foundation, it's a really old and established uh, foundation here in Lincoln. Uh, a lot of people have contributed and created accounts in their name there that the foundation then um, awards to grants to various organizations. So someone you know, may gift them some millions of dollars and say, I want the proceeds, the interest from this to go to benefit, you know, education or or music or, you know, the parks or, or whatever interested them um, in, in my name, you know, after after I'm gone. So they have, uh, it's a fairly large uh, foundation and they have this wonderful garden area back behind their building and it's, uh, it's tree covered, it's there's fountains and uh, waterfalls, and they have a little stage. 
And they've done uh, concerts there in the summer on Wednesdays uh, for a number of years. But um, uh, before we started doing this about five years ago, um, it had kind of fallen on uh, the city. And city funding has changed significantly here in Lincoln. It's, you know, it's like any place else. There's politics involved. And then, you know, there's roads and things that have to have money and things like uh, you know, providing free music for people maybe isn't as high on the list. So yeah. funding funding disappeared uh, from the city to help coordinate that. And because we had worked with uh, the foundation with a number of different musical groups, um, they approached my business and said, would you help us um, in presenting uh, groups on Wednesdays? So when we started... Um, the community foundation helped with some funds, and they helped uh, find some other businesses in the area to support it. And uh, now we have groups uh, every Wednesday from May through August, it's been for the last five years, um, that are musical groups. They're professional musicians, everything from blues to country, uh, bluegrass, uh, jazz groups, um, we, there's a local bassoon quartet called Bassoons Across Nebraska that's played there. Um, there's the Lincoln Public Schools has a uh, steel drum group um, called Pangea. That they're just a whole lot of fun. They they got 20 or 30 steel drums that are on stage and they have their own following. And uh, our brass quartet's played there. The trumpet ensembles played there. There's a, a a uh, saxophone quartet called Group Sax uh, that's made up of some players from the Nebraska Jazz Orchestra. So there's a lot of variety in terms of the music that's presented there. And it's been so successful that this year they've asked us, next year they've asked us to expand into September. So it's actually going to be five months of, of music every Wednesday at noon that's free to the public. And um, I, my business gets some opportunities now to... Oh, as groups and touring things come through the state, um, uh, touring Broadway shows, for example, Book of Mormon was here about a month ago, and uh, my business booked the local musicians for the pit, and I got to play. Um, I have a small um, pickup orchestra, if you will, that does commercial orchestra things. Uh, we um, provide an orchestra um, 46 piece, I think, for the uh, local production of the Nutcracker that happens at the Lead Center each year. Um, we do, every couple of years, we do a production of the Messiah um, in one of the communities uh, to the west, Henderson, Nebraska. And we get a chance to book um, um, musicians for, and you know, lots of different things that come through. The uh, Temptations we've done four or five times and provided... Um, you know the local musicians for for that and uh, other other things that come through that uh, um, you know require local professional musicians. Sometimes we get a book book those. So um, my business probably provides more than 200 um, services a year for musicians in in the community. Um, it's been it's you know a great variety. None of those groups are are working full-time like, um, you know, a symphony orchestra would be, like the Omaha Symphony, but um, it really gives the local music community just a lot of uh, opportunities uh, to play. And, um, it's uh, 
it's been good for me because I a lot of those things are uh, organizations that I'm involved with, that I play with, that I create playing opportunities for me. And then a lot of them are things where I can create playing opportunities for my friends and other musicians in the community. I think we, we sent out over 125 W-2s uh, last week for uh, musicians that have worked for me in the last year, which is really quite a bit for you know the city of Lincoln, which is you know, 250 or so thousand people. So there's really quite a bit going on here, and we, we're, we're lucky that we kind of got our fingers in quite a bit of that. At this point... I told Dean, I think it's so inspiring that not only is he creating opportunities for himself and his friends, but the whole community in Lincoln also benefits by having all of these amazing opportunities to hear high-level music making. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I, I've never been interested in having a lot of money. You know, I, I own my house and I, uh, I have a car and I do what I want. I'm not, I don't uh, I don't spend a lot of money on things, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I've always been. I've, I've had so many friends, and in, in this business, when you're constantly looking for people that maybe have money that can help you, and you're you're out begging and knocking on doors, it just it just occurred to me that there's there's so many people out there that they really have a lot of money and they're not happy. And there's so many of my friends that I see that are doing things that, you know, it's a hard job and they're doing it and they they can't wait till they retire and they don't really know what they're going to do when they retire and they're not really all that happy with, their, with what they're doing now is a, a means to some end that they really haven't defined and I just kind of decided that I I don't care about any of that as long as I can get by I. Um, I want to be happy and um, do what I enjoy. Well, I think that's all for this episode. I hope this was informative for all the listeners tuning in. I want to thank Dean Heist for giving up his time and giving us so much wonderful information about how to build a freelance career of your own. Uh, I'd also like to thank Dean for giving me uh, Nebraska Brass CD, uh, the music that you hear in this episode. I'll leave some information on my blog about how you can find it if you want to hear more. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode. And I'd like to thank Dan Carson and his brothers for the music uh, in the intro and the outro of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.